Our scripture reading this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, the Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up to a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, the Beatitudes. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you have your Bible, I hope it's open to uh, Matthew chapter 5. Um, as we uh, continue on in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we've been in this section called the Beatitudes uh, last week, and we'll continue into that this week and uh, finish this section off. Um, and then next Sunday, Chris Lewis is going to be with us, and he'll take the next section. Um, Chris is from Foothill Church. Um, they've been with, he's been with us before, him and his wife, Michelle. So he's actually preaching at South uh, our, our South Congregation um, uh, today, and he'll be with us next week. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, if you remember from last week, we said um, the Beatitudes, if, you're, if you've been a Christian, um, if you've read the Bible, um, this is one of those sections that I think we can kind of become so familiar with. It, it, we've, we hear it so much, it's, it, it's made its way into pop culture um, that we can kind of just glaze over it or we can kind of go through it or we don't really understand what does this mean. Um, so do you remember last Sunday we said this, this idea of being blessed isn't if you do this, then you get this. Um, this uh, word blessed is really, um, it means happy or probably a better way to describe it is, is flourishing. So flourishing are those that and whatever the description is of these that we've looked at. So it's not a part, blessing isn't kind of, oh, um, you know, like bless the sick person. It's not part of a wish or to invoke a blessing. Rather, it's to recognize an, an, existing, an existing state of uh, good fortune, of, of happiness in that way. So it's, it's, descri- it's a description of the blessed, the flourishing, um, those that are happy in Christ look like this, and, and it gives us description. Um, if you remember, we said the Sermon on the Mount isn't just a sermon, but it's a silhouette of Jesus. It'll help us to actually see what Jesus is like, and as we will see, then really what we should be like. 
it's a mirror to us um, that allows us to see, do I look this way? Is this a description of me if I claim to be a follower of Jesus? And so let's just jump right back in um, to where we were last week. We looked at blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Um, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst uh, for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And then this week, we uh, pick up blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Um, Mercy, did anybody play that game as a kid, the game Mercy? You know, where you, you, you and your friends, like a game of strength. You know, you'd lock hands and you'd try to like, you know, kind of bend the other person's hand back until they gave up and cried, mercy, right? Give me mercy um, in that way. Um, and I guess in some ways that kind of gets to it. It's relieving um, kind of pain in some ways. So uh, um, mercy has kind of two main meanings to it um, in, in this, as we look at it. Um, the first one that we'll look at is really compassion in action. Uh, that's what I said during our announcements, really. It's active goodwill. Um, there's a hospital in, in the town that I kind of grew up in, um, back in the States, and it's named Mercy. It's Mercy Hospital. Um, and, it, and I think it's run by the Catholic Church, and, and it, it's pretty obvious. You come here for mercy. You come here for help. Um, in, if you remember, in the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus uh, taught, um, he, uh, there's a man in need, and the priest walks by, the other kind of holy man walks by, and then the Samaritan, who is, you know, the bad guy in the story. Um, for us, that might be like the Muslim today or, or whatever. Um, he's the one who actually um, helps the man. And Jesus says, well, which was the good neighbor? And if you remember, their answer is the one who had mercy on him. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. Um, so the command of Jesus is that we are to go and be merciful. We are to be a merciful people. This is what um, uh, the prophet, or if, back in Zechariah, even in the Old Testament, listen to this. This is, this is powerful words. This is uh, Zechariah chapter 7, 9 through 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgment. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, or let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Okay, so he's, he says be merciful, and then he kind of describes the opposite of what being merciful is. It's oppressing um, the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the, 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 the one passing through. For us, that might be, um, you know, the, the Syrian who has been displaced and is, has been put among us, asylum seekers, or the poor, or to devise evil against each other in our heart. That's the opposite of mercy. But listen to what he goes on. So that was the command to God's people in verse 11, but they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn, a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. So God's like, I want you as my people 
to be merciful. And they're like, nah, we're good. We're going to harden our heart, diamond heart. That's as hard as it gets, hardest, hardest substance known to man, right? And so then this is the Lord's response. <laughs> Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. You want to get God angry? Don't be merciful. Don't be a compassionate person. And this is what his anger turned into. He says, as I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear. You're not going to listen to me? Then when you and, you're in, in you and your time of need, I'm not going to hear, says the Lord. And I scattered them with a whirlwind amongst the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. That's how angry God got. And what did he get angry over? They refused to be merciful people. They wanted to devise evil in their hearts. And so that's the first aspect of mercy is compassion and action. But the second kind of aspect of it is that mercy is forgiveness. Um, we see this uh, story in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. Jesus tells this uh, story in response to Peter's question. So Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? How often do I have to keep putting up with people who tick me off and sin against me? As many as seven times, Peter says, seven. Seven sounds like a good holy number. Peter, I'll do it seven times. And Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, which is what we're talking about, right? Kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who, owned, who owed him 10,000 talents. That's equivalent to about $20 million in our today's currency. And since he could not pay, how do you get in debt for $20 million, by the way? That's a lot. Um, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Just wiped the slate clean. I forgive the debt. You don't owe it to me anymore. Wow. But with that then, same servant went out, and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. That's about $2,000 in today's currency. 20 million, he was forgiven. Guy owed him two grand. And he pleaded with him. Oh, oh sorry. Um, so he seized him, began to choke him. So he's violent. And he says, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me and I will pay you. Same words that he used. And he refused and he went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have, what's the word? Mercy on your fellow servant 
as I had mercy on you. Should you not forgive the debt? Because I forgave you a a much more bigger debt, a massive amount of debt. Because you were forgiven of much, could you not or should you not forgive little? And in his anger, again, (laughs) it makes the Lord angry, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay his debt. Now listen to these words, verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. If we refuse to be merciful, according to this text, it is because you have never understood the mercy of God yourself. If we refuse to forgive people, if we are marked by unforgiveness, by bitterness, by grudges, by keeping um, track of how people offend us, hurt us, if that is how we are, if that's our disposition, you have to really stop and ask yourself, am I actually a Christian? Because what is one of the marks of a Christian is forgiveness. Why? Because we understand we are the people who were forgiven the 20 million. And so we forgive the 2,000. We forgive not seven, but seven times seven. This is a stark warning for us. But a few disclaimers. It might, it might not be a warning for those that struggle, right? So we forgive. We genuinely forgive. Sometimes that hurt comes back, doesn't it? We have to then struggle with that bitterness again. We have to struggle to not hold that grudge. And we forgive. Again, we take that to the Lord. So this isn't, the, this isn't a warning that if you're struggling to forgive, we're making, we're wanting to forgive. And then also, I'd want to maybe just uh, make room for someone who finds it difficult because the offense is so recent, and we still have this kind of emotional shock, don't we? Forgiveness is a process. And the bigger the debt owed, the harder it is that process might be. And it depends on, I suppose, what the offense, is, the offense was as well. But the warning is for the hard-hearted. For those of us that have no interest in forgiving, don't want to even consider the forgiveness. We've hardened our heart. And so are you merciful? Do we show compassion actively? Do we leave margin in our budget so that we have room to be merciful? Or are we like, oh, man, I'd love to meet that need, but I, have no, I can't. I have no margin in my finances for that. Or do we leave a little bit of space? Um, that's what they would do in the Old Testament. When they would go to the harvest, they wouldn't harvest at all. They would leave some around the corners and the edges. They would leave margin. Why? For the people who didn't have food. They would be able to come, and they would be able to pick. They would be able to collect the margin that was left. Are you forgiving or do you hold grudges? Do you get bitter? Um, I don't remember who said it, but someone said bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. That's a good description, isn't it? Bitterness doesn't do anything to the other person. 
You're the one who gets affected by the bitterness. It affects your health, physically, mental health. But it also just doesn't, it's not the mark of a Christian. Why? Because Jesus is so merciful, isn't he? He's so tender. He's so forgiving. Jesus' forgiveness to us never runs out. What if Jesus only forgave you seven times? What if you only had seven mistakes that you could make in your life and then that was it? Sorry. Ran out of forgiveness. But that's not God, is it? His merciful, compassionate heart has no end to us. And so it's just grace upon grace upon grace. We don't take advantage of that. But we know as we are there. And so even this morning, if you're struggling with bitterness, know that you can come to Jesus and find uh, his grace and compassion even for you. Next, then, we, as we move on, blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is a, a theme that um, is quite dominant throughout the whole of Scripture. Um, so we see in Psalm 24, uh, verses 3 and 4, this question, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? And the answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So the opposite of a pure, a pure heart in one aspect is uh, a soul to what is, lifting up to what is false um, and deceitful. With the pure in heart, those that are pure in heart, for us, you could say, that guy's pure in heart because what you see is what you get. There's nothing hidden. That person is as you see them. Later on in Matthew, in chapter, in chapter 23, um, Jesus is going to say it this way um, to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were not pure in heart at all. And this is Jesus' words to them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within... You are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, the Pharisees were always externalizing. It was always on the outside what was good. They wanted to look good for other people. So they had laws that they would keep, and they kept them. They would pray on the street corners. These were the godly people in society. And Jesus says, nah, because it's not the outward appearance. It's what's on the inside that matters. It's are you pure in heart? I have to drink a lot right now because I don't have saliva glands at work. And so I don't really care if the outside's dirty. Um, it's, it's, it's what's on the inside, right? So if my kids are using a cup, they got greasy fingerprints all over it and muck and paint or whatever. Like I don't mind that as much as long as all that stuff wasn't on the inside of the cup. Because it's, it's the inside that matters when you're drinking, isn't it? Because that's... That's where your contents are going to be. 
So a pure heart is a heart that doesn't bring mixed motives. It doesn't bring divided loyalties to God, which is what the Pharisees did. They wanted to appear loyal to God on the outside. That wasn't really the case. They're being dishonest. James, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, says it this way. James 4.8, he says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. What an amazing promise that we have, right? God's not aloof. You, if you desire to be near to God, boom, there he is, near to you. <laughs> but what does he say? He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded So someone who doesn't have a pure heart is someone who's double-minded. There's mixed motives there. There's mixed allegiances. On the one hand, they want to do stuff to please God, one foot in church, but still kind of one foot out in the world, as it were. It's not a pure heart. The psalmist, Psalm 86, he says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I might walk in truth. I love this phrase, what he says. He says, unite my heart to fear your name. Why? Because he knew his heart wasn't, it was divided. He had a divided heart. It wasn't pure. And so he prays that the Lord would unite his heart. Unite my heart that I would fear your name, that I would revere you. This uh, heart, you know, we've talked about this before, but the heart isn't, you know, it, it, it's, it's the word that the Bible uses, the scripture uses, Jesus uses, um, that the prophets would use to really describe our interior life, right? Our, our, our mind, our emotions, our, our feelings, our thoughts. Um, so when we say the heart, it's the interior part of you. It's the part of you that you see that no one else can see. Um, I mean, we see it at times. It comes out. Jesus says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And, um, right? So you know when someone's pure in heart. This person isn't trying to hide anything. And no one does this perfectly, right? We all sometimes have our, our heart. Our, our, we talk a lot about our affections here. And we pray that the Lord would weaken our affections for sin and stir our affections for Jesus deeply, that those affections uh, would displace our divided heart. And so we, this is even one of our values, isn't it? Um, we value spiritual authenticity here. So this isn't the kind of church that you have to wear the Sunday mask on, Right? Hey, how you doing? I'm fine. It's just not, that's like the knee-jerk reaction is I'm fine. But what if you're not fine? And none of us are fine every Sunday, are we? Like every week you're fine? Jesus is getting at this pure heart. This is a sincere heart. There's a sincerity that's involved here. And he says that person will see God. This is the person that will see God. What does he mean by that? Well, I think it's, as with a lot, of the, a lot of these promises, for the person that is flourishing, the person that is in Christ, there's an aspect of it that's now, and there's an aspect of it that's then. And this is the world we live in, right? Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. 
It's now, it's present, it's real, it's here. But it's not here in its, in its fullness. It's not here in its, um, it, it hasn't come to full fruition yet. So that'll come when Jesus comes again, the second coming. And so we see Jesus now. We see them in the scripture. We see him in creation. We see him through our circumstances, don't we? Right? In pain and suffering and in, in celebration. Job is a good example of that. He saw God through his experiences. And so all of those things, our experiences, all of that, we filter through the scripture. But we see God in, in multiple ways. But then there's an, ultimate, there's an ultimate seeing God, isn't there? Or one day we'll, we'll actually see him. So this is what Job says. He says, for I know that my Redeemer lives. Now, I love this because in some sense, Job didn't have a clue who his Redeemer was. <laughs> I mean, Jesus wouldn't come for a long time. But he has a sense of, of, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. He knows that God is real and that at, 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 this is also words that are breathed out by the, by the Holy Spirit, right? And he says, and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I see God. I shall, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. There will one day where we will actually behold where we will actually see Jesus face to face. And that is both a terrifying day, in some sense, isn't it? But that terror, I think, uh, after the judgment, after all that stuff settled down, we just get to be in his presence. We actually get to see him in an ultimate way. Verse 9 then, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So again, this idea of peace, uh, we need to just briefly remind ourselves, peace is not just the absence of conflict. Um, So the word that uh, is here is shalom, right? And shalom isn't just the absence of conflict, but it's it's wholeness. It's, it's, it's It's an integrated person. It's a wholeness of well-being. And we are to be makers of that. We're to be actively pursuing shalom. Ephesians 4. Um, the Apostle Paul says it this way in Ephesians 4, 1 to, 1 to 3. He says, Therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Again, this is exactly kind of what we're saying here, right? Paul's like, hey, if you're, le- if you're legit, then you'll walk in the way that, uh, that you were called. And so Jesus says, hey, this Sermon on the Mount is, is the way that you're meant to walk. Right? Verse 2, how is that then? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing um, with one another in love. Now, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the, spe- uh, of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we are to be peacemakers. We are to be eager to maintain the unity in John um, if you remember when we did the sermon of uh, uh, the, the Psalms of Ascent, the last one we ended one was how sweet it is when we dwell in unity. And we're to be eager to maintain that, uh, that unity of the Spirit, not a fake unity, in the bond of peace. Are we eager? 
I think we want to be, but if we're really honest, peacemaking is risky, and it's hard. I mean, we should know that, right, where we live. I mean, the island that that we live on hasn't experienced this maybe ever, (laughs) you know? It's always kind of been plans, warring, and this and that. I mean, it just hasn't ever been a place of, of peace. I mean, right now, it's an absence of violent conflict. But has anything really changed in, in the hearts of people? Probably not. Again, James chapter 3, 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above, so this is God's wisdom that we can have if we ask for it, is first pure, pure in heart, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy. Do you see how all these things keep coming together? This picture of what a Christian is. Full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So we should be eager to do that, both as individuals but, that, but again, peacema- peacemaking is risky because it might mean having hard conversations with someone, right? We, we have those in our relationships. You see something that you're like, oh, this isn't going to end well. This isn't going this isn't, this isn't to lead to a place of peace. It's going to be conflict. I should say something now. I don't want to have that conversation with that person. I don't want to have to say hard things to that person. It's risky. But maybe I just won't. Maybe I'll just leave it and kind of hope for the best. And maybe, or maybe somebody else will have that conversation. But we're to be eager with gentleness, <laughs> with all humility. This isn't peacemaking isn't busted down the door and being like, right, mate, you got to get yourself sorted out here. This isn't going to end well. I mean, you might have to have that kind of conversation, but it's with gentleness and humility, bearing with one another in love. But then even communally, how do we do that? How do we, as Christians, help make peace here? And there's probably loads of wonderful stories that never get told because those aren't really what people want to watch on the news. We want to hear how it's going bad. But we need to be involved in that. And we've talked about how we can do that. Even the renewal of the walkway behind us is part of the aspect of that is trying to make peace. (laughs) It's trying to make a physical space literally a place where we can't have sectarian celebration anymore. How do we do this then? Well, how, how we do it is be like Jesus is the answer, right? This is what Jesus did, Philippians chapter 2, verses uh, 3 to 8. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Man, that is not how the world operates. Considering others more significant than yourself, that is the opposite of the world we live in. Uh, All social media, all that sort of stuff is so that I can make you think I am more significant than you. I'm an influencer, whatever that is, right? 
Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, so Jesus comes down as God enfleshed, and even though he was that, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, he He condescended himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Part of the way that we make peace is by being like Jesus, considering other people more significant than us, not trying to always have my way, but I will humble myself. He says, these people get to be called the sons of God. Sons, back then particularly, participated in the father's business. They would, have been inher- they would have inherited that. We get to participate in the divine character of God. We, like Jesus, get to say, I, I'm just do- I just do what the father tells me to do. Galatians 5, um, Paul says this, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Now listen to the next ones as we think about peacemaking. Because we always, we always think about, oh yeah, this is the sexual immorality part, right? But listen to, listen to the other part of the list. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. All of those the opposite of peacemaking. And this gets listed in with envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like that, he says. And he says, I warn you as I've warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit, as a son would inherit, the kingdom of God. If your life is marked by strife and jealousy, fits of anger, dissensions, divisions, not making peace, not thinking others more significant than you, being able to humble yourself and go and have hard, difficult conversations with people to make peace. It's just clear you're not going to be inheriting the kingdom of God as the sons of God are. This is like, man, Jesus is like laying it down. Because when I read that list, I'm like, right, I'm not having orgies, and I'm not uh, like a, a, witch, a witch, not doing sorcery, I'm good. <laughs> and he's like, no, mate, like strife and jealousy, fits of anger. I'm like, yeah, but that's the kind of stuff that normal, we all kind of do that, right? So he's like, no, that people that are, that are marked, that, that that's, your, that's just your disposition, you're not going to inherit. You're not going to be called the sons of God. You're not going to see God. Moving on then. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he changes from third person to first person, and he reiterates this last one. So not just blessed are those, but now blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely 
on my account? You're like, man, I don't want that. Who wants to be in that position? Kind of a, a word that would encapsulate it all is just harassed. Who wants to be harassed because they're like Jesus? But he says, if that's you, verse 12, rejoice and be glad. And you're, you're like, well, why? Why would I rejoice and be glad about that? For your reward is great. There's a great reward for you in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you, and as we know, they will persecute Jesus and all of his followers as well. Persecution for us, we tend to think of it in the most extreme terms, right? And, and it does, it happens. Like, so we literally have brothers and sisters in Christ who are being jailed, who are being beaten, who are being um, executed. They are, they are giving their life as martyrs for their faith in Christ. And so we tend to think of persecution as that, uh, and that is, that is that, and that is happening. But if you peel the onion, the layers of the onion off, persecution really is the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. And that's why it ends in um, such violence at times. But Jesus tells his disciples this. He tells us this. John 15, 18 to 18. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Right? And it hated Jesus through the prophets, right? through, through the worldview of Christ. If you were of the world... The world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. This is a clash of two irreconcilable value systems. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Now, that ha- we have to like deconstruct that because if you're never getting persecuted, if there's never any pushback, it might be, co- it might be because the world loves you. And, and if, it, if it does, it's because you're just like them. The reason the world hates you is because you're different. And so maybe we're not different if we're never getting any kind of pushback, right? And we're not going to jail for our faith yet or now, but does the world love you as its own? And if it does, it's, it might be because you are of its own. Do you ever take a hit for being like Jesus? Does your worldview ever clash with your non-Christian friends that are around you? Or maybe we just kind of keep those things kind of quiet to ourselves. I don't want to appear too different. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag that I think really differently on some issues. I mean, I'm assuming that you do if you're a Christian, right? We make such an effort to be just like the world because we want to be liked and accepted. Right? And if you're a pastor or a church planter, we could do all of that kind of under the guise of contextualization. We just want to be contextual to our, our and we should. We, so contextualization means being sensitive to the world around you, understanding it, 
so that then you can bring the message of Christ in an understandable way. That's contextualization. Nothing wrong with that. We should absolutely do that. Spurgeon, I think, said, preach with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other, right? Understand your culture and world around you, but so that you can bring the word of God to bear on that. But sometimes we just want to be so liked and so accepted by the world that we do everything. And we have to ask ourselves, if you are being liked and loved by the world, Are we harassed? Are you ever harassed for your faith? Do you ever take a hit? Do you ever have to lose face because you're a Christian? Do you ever get made fun of? Do you ever get left out of stuff because you're a Christian? Ever insulted? We're not talking about being persecuted for, we're talking about being persecuted for righteousness, not for being a jerk, right? So you can go the other way with this as a Christian, and I don't want to be anything like the world, and I'm just going to, like, track bomb people, and I'm just going to, like, you just be a jerk about, uh, about stuff and be persecuted just because you're being offensive, not because the gospel is being offensive, because you are. That's not what he's saying here. It's, it's you're being persecuted for righteousness on, on account of Jesus. Do people know you're a Christian? Acts 14 says, through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. Do we have tribulations because of who we are as as Christians? I know business owners that because they're a Christian, take home less money because they actually pay tax that they're supposed to pay. They actually do the right thing instead of trying to be dishonest about things. Paul tells Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. If you desire to live a godly life in Christ, we desire to live out the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to get harassed for that at some level. And so, when that happens, what should our response be? So many times our response is lament. Oh, man, it's like we're bummed out because of that. But Jesus says, no, rejoice. (laughs) Verse 12, like rejoice and be glad in that. Why? Because it's a sign of authentication. It's a sign. It's a badge of true discipleship that you actually are going to have a great reward in heaven. This is what the disciples did in Acts 5. They get beaten in front of the council, and then they go out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And the, the whole context of it was that is they asked them to basically fit in with the culture around them, stop, stop preaching Jesus, stop living this out, conform and be like the rest of us. And they said, listen, we, we have to obey God, not obey man. We're not, we're not going to be man pleasers. And they hated them for it. The text says they hated them and wanted to kill them, and they would have if they would have got away with it, and later they do. John Stott says, no comment could be more hurtful or probably should be more hurtful to the Christian than the words are, but you're no different from anybody else. If that were to be said about you as a Christian, that should crush you, right? Theirs is the kingdom. Great is your reward in heaven. 
Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. For this light, monetary, uh, momentary, not monetary, well, it might be monetary too, but for this light, momentary affliction. Now, this is, remember what Paul went through? That guy was beaten, shipwrecked, bitten by snakes, left for dead, stoned, light and momentary, he says, affliction, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Like, you can't even comprehend that great reward that's for you. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they're transient, he says. They're, they're coming and going. But the things that are unseen are eternal. They're weighty. Do we spend all of our time on the things that can be seen? Or do we really care about our interior life? Is it caught up in the things that can't be seen? So that we might, as Paul would say in 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Well, we love the appearing of Christ. Do we long for that day? Do we look forward to that day? These beatitudes for us picture, they give us the silhouette of Jesus, but it's a mirror to us as well. Is, is this us? Is this me, if I'm honest, if I'm looking at this? Am I poor in spirit? Do I know my neediness, my spiritual poverty before the Lord? And this is where it all starts. Uh, someone described the, the beatitudes uh, as kind of rings, you know, like in the gym, and you swing from one ring to the next. Um, and this is like the gymnasium of Jesus, where you have to swing on these rings. But it starts, they're, they're, they're kind of in order on purpose. Because if you're struggling to hunger and thirst for righteousness, what do you do? You go back to the very beginning and you admit your spiritual poverty. You admit your need, your need for those things. Am I, do I mourn? Over the injustice, do I mourn over things that are antithetical to the kingdom? And that brings me really to the root of all of these things. Do I mourn over my own sin? Does, do, does my sin bother me? Am I meek? Am I approachable? But, but do I not grasp for worldly power, but really understand the power of the kingdom of God? Do I measure things that are just and unjust by God's kingdom? Do I hunger and thirst for righteousness? Am I merciful? Am I compassionate and forgiving? Am I pure in heart? Or am I kind of double-minded? Am I one way on Sunday around my Christian friends and another way around my non-Christian friends and I pray to God those worlds never collide? Am I a peacemaker? Do I ever have to take a hit for being a follower of Jesus? Is this me? Is this you? Is this what we're striving for? Or are these just things we're trying to avoid? Because this is who Jesus is, isn't it? If we want to be like Jesus, this is what Jesus is. Jesus was poor so that you could be rich, spiritually rich. Jesus mourned over the sins of the world. It broke his heart. He comes to cover 
those sins, for those who repent. Jesus was meek, not taking worldly power, but using God's measure of justice. Jesus hungered and he thirsted, literally 40 days, right, so that you and I could be full. Jesus is merciful, he's forgiving, his grace is unending. He's pure in heart, and he comes to give you literally a new heart. Replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He comes to make a way through his blood to bring peace and reconcile us to God. Obviously, Jesus is persecuted, literally killed on a cross. And so the way of Jesus is this way described in the Beatitudes. If you're here this morning, as an, maybe you say, listen, I'm not a Christian, but I'm here to kind of discover what this is about. Um, this is the upside-down kingdom of Jesus. It's, 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 it's different. It's opposite than the, right, the way of the world. It's not trying to grasp and cling power. It's not trying to, as John said, be really all about me. It's the opposite of that. It's, it's ridding ourselves of those things, be it in uh, humble, receiving the grace of God, admitting our own weakness in that, so that we can then go out and serve the world with compassion and mercy and forgiveness and peace. But it's the way to flourishing. It's the way to happiness. It's the way to be satisfied. Because all those other ways never satisfy us. How many, how many people who we would all, um, like, the world would want to exchange place with, right? Celebrity, people who are rich, famous, all the things that the world values, people who have all of that and yet commit suicide and end their life. Why? It, it doesn't satisfy. It just doesn't bring the things that we think it brings. Jesus says this is the way to happiness. This is actually the way to flourishing. But it's not the way of the world. And that's where we are as Christians, isn't it? This, is, this brings us to this crossroads. Which way will I go? Will I walk the way of the world or will I walk the way of Jesus? Knowing that I'm going to get harassed for that, knowing that I might not get that promotion, knowing that I might make less money, knowing that there's a possibility of all those things. Or will I just chase the wind, as, a, as Ecclesiastes says? And those of us that would claim the name of Christ, we have to really take a hard look at this, isn't it? Jesus uses this like surgical knife to really expose this interior life of what we should look like. Is this us? Or, and this isn't us perfectly, Right? We strive, but are we, are we striving for these things? Are these the things that we value? Are we really kind of look more like the world and going for what they value? Are we pure of heart? The good news is, if you're a non-Christian or if you're um, a Christian that still struggles with some of these things, that there's grace and forgiveness um, offered to you because of what Jesus has done. Because he's taken all of your sin. He's taken all of your shortcomings. He's taken all of your anger, all of your desires that are antithetical to Jesus. 
He's taken those on the cross. He's died in place of our punishment for those things so that you could have peace and be reconciled to God. And that's available to you fresh again today. His mercies are new every day to us. We're going to come to the table and um, be reminded of those things if you're a Christian, um, that his body was broken for you, his blood was shed for you, that we can actually come um, and rejoice. (laughs) That although we're not perfect in all of these things, uh, Jesus and his grace will help us to become more like him. Um, and lead us into more flourishing, into, into more peace, into a life of, of, of true happiness. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your peace. We thank you that you replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And I, Father, uh, this morning, Father, I pray uh, that we wouldn't be like your people that were described in, in uh, the Old Testament, hard-hearted, not being not wanting to hear, really wanting to be like the nations around them. And that just leads in disaster. And ultimately, it leads in us being uh, recipients of your anger. And so, Father, I pray that today, uh, those of us that have ears would hear, that today would be the day of repentance, that we would actually uh, repent from um, trying to strive after the wind. Now that we become new and afresh and repent of those things um, and follow the way of Jesus, maybe even for the first time. And so guide us and lead us um, afresh today. Um, may we all in this room have soft hearts, um, hearts that are eager uh, to repent, because that is the gospel. And you offer fresh grace to us time and time again. And Father, we thank you for that.